For this part of the show, let's do what I call some good news factoids, at least as many as I can find. I try to do three or four of these every week. Just to remind everyone, including myself, there's still lots of good things going on on this earth of ours. For instance, Texas has been a leader in wind energy for a number of years now. In 2020, wind made up 23% of the state's generating capacity and provided 20% of in-state generation. But although wind capacity in Texas has grown rapidly in recent years, solar power is expected to make up the largest share of the state's capacity additions over the next couple of years from, from this point on. Texas plans to add 4.6 gigawatts of utility-scale solar power this year alone, okay, and 5.4 more gigawatts by the year 2022. This will give the state a total capacity of 15 gigawatts, which will really catch us up basically with California, the state with the most large-scale solar power. California currently has about 16 gigawatts of installed solar power and plans to add another couple of more over the next year or two. The current planned capacity for Texas will provide enough power for 5 million homes, taking into account the intermittency of solar energy. Much of the new solar capacity will be in the Permian Basin area out in West Texas, which is a particularly sunny place. Because solar generation is greatest in the middle of the day, when wind generation is typically lower, the transmission line infrastructure already is in place for the wind power to interplay with the online solar power and between them basically run the homes 24-7. And we're not very far away, folks, here in Texas, and it's happening in other places, to also start putting in some very serious battery storage systems so it won't really matter what the source of power is. There'll always be a backup there just in case we need it. And just as an aside, not directly from this, but it does fit in, we are also going to work so that what happened this past year in Texas doesn't happen again with that tremendously cold, freezing weather we had. We just didn't prepare ourselves. We didn't winterize. I guess we thought we never had to. That's now actually going to become a law before it was only a recommendation by the power companies. Cost a lot of money, folks. The, it, it's going to be a year or two paying it off. They had to buy some of the most expensive natural gas they've ever bought. And you do realize it wasn't just because of wind or solar or natural gas. The whole system went down because it was not properly winterized for anything like that storm when it arrived. Even though the independent Texans that we are, uh, we never want to think about this. But the real reason that this is even existing is the boom in solar power here in Texas is actually driven to a good degree by the Federal Solar Investment Tax Credit that is available to project developers all over this country as well as Texas. And also, one other thing I have to add is making it so, so reasonable is the ever-lowering cost of total solar technology. Just to show you how serious Texas has become, fully one-third of the utility-scale solar capacity planned to come online in the United States in the next two years, one-third of it now, is going to be here in Texas alone. Currently, utility-scale solar only makes up 4 or 5% of the electrical generating capacity here in Texas. But that's just about to change. Well, while we're on uh, green energy, let's add this little bit of a fact that I just came 
to my attention. The Biden administration has given final approval to a project that it hopes will usher in a whole new era of wind energy here in the United States. The green light was announced by the Department of the Interior just on May the 11th. The Vineyard Wind Project intends to install 84 wind turbines about 12 nautical miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. In total, Vineyard Wind will generate 800 megawatts of electricity, enough to power almost a half million homes. The construction project will create 3,600 jobs. The $2.8 billion project is a joint venture of the energy firm Avangard Renewables and a second company, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. The idea of a wind farm off of Massachusetts started, gosh, about 20 years ago, but ran into all kinds of setbacks, delays, and well-funded opposition from waterfront property owners concerned about what will ultimately be the barely discernible site of the tiny... Remember, they're 12 nautical miles out, folks, on the distant horizon. The Trump administration moved to cancel the permitting process for vineyard wind, but Immediately, the Biden administration revived the project in March as part of its greater efforts to tackle climate change. Electricity generated by the Vineyard Wind will travel via cables buried six feet below the ocean floor to Cape Cod, where they'll connect to a substation and feed into the New England grid. The project is expected to be delivering wind power early in the year 2023. The current administration says that it intends to fast-track permits for other wind projects off the Atlantic coast and that it will offer $3 billion in federal loan guarantees for offshore wind projects and invest in upgrades to ports across the United States to support wind turbine construction on both coast and even in the Gulf of Mexico. So now what may appear when I first begin this particular little factoid as bad news really isn't. The glut of plastics is one of the world's most challenging environmental problems. I think I talk about it at least once a month. It's a real problem, folks. The average American generates over 200 pounds of plastic each year, each one of us. And most of that ends up in landfills and in the ocean. Researchers around the globe continue to work on potential solutions to this plastic waste problem. Two years ago, scientists at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory announced the invention of a new plastic that could be the answer to at least a good deal of our plastic waste problem. The material is called polydictonamine. I'll do that once more. Polydictonamine. We're going to now name it, so did everybody else, PDK. And it differs from traditional plastics in one very important way. It can be recycled indefinitely with zero loss in quality because it can easily be broken back down to its major constituents and be used to make brand new plastic as strong and as durable as the first generation. Currently, only a small percentage of plastics are really recycled. When many plastics are melted down together, the polymers mix into a slew of kind of unusable, incompatible to additives, resulting in a new material with much lower quality. As a result, less than 10% of plastic is recycled more than one time. 
Recently, the Berkeley Lab researchers released a study that shows what we could accomplish if manufacturers would begin using PDKs on a large scale. They determined that PDK-based plastic could quickly become commercially competitive with conventional plastics and, furthermore, would get less expensive and more sustainable as time goes on than even the current plastics we're using. PDK is starting to draw interest from companies needing to source plastics. The best initial application for PDKs are markets where manufacturers have the most access to products at the end of their lifespan, such as automobile industry and, of course, consumer electronics. Making plastics part of a circular economy is a challenging task, but we need to take that task on. It can't continue the way it's going. As an aside to this, I don't have the article in front of me, but I remember most of the uh, points about it. They've also discovered a few ways that even the plastics we're using now, we can get to break down. Strangely enough, one of the, the possibilities is nothing but the common mealworm. If everybody knows what a mealworm is, maybe if you've ever raised lizards or turtles or chickens, it's that little brown worm that's everywhere, a little caterpillar-looking thing. It's not. It's actually a worm. It's a larva. And they have found out they can break that, that plastic polymer down, and it's broken down far enough that it doesn't continue to exist in the environment in a dangerous way. Now, whether they can make that a... Um, a large enough percentage to make it of any value, I really can't give you a good answer. It was just studied. I found it you know, a year or two ago in one of the science magazines, and the tests they had done so far were, were pretty doggone uh, amazing. So that's the other source is, hey, if you, can't, uh, if you can't reuse it, let's at least find a way that we can actually eliminate it from our environment because it is devastating big portions of the ocean. It doesn't, folks, even when it breaks down, you don't see it. It goes to a thing called nanoparticles and they just go into little micro living things that go into bigger, that go into bigger up the food chain. And right now, for instance, virtually every, listen to this, every penguin that they have tested on in the Antarctic now has measurable amounts of plastic in its body. We're not sure what that's going to do long run to any individual animal, but it can't be good and it doesn't serve any nutrient purpose or anything. So it is something that we need to address the sooner, the better. To end on sort of a good note, you might not think so at first, but United Airlines has just committed to 4 million gallons of environmental sustainable fuel for their planes for this year. Now, that's just to start, folks. Four million gallons is sounds like a lot, but airplanes burn a lot of fuel. They have committed to 515 million gallons, though, by the year 2023, which will mean that it will take a full 40,000 flights, wide-body airplane, between New York and London, well over a year's worth of pandemic air travel between the two cities. Why is that important? First, it's renewable fuel. Secondly, it's not near as polluting to the air. Airplanes, commercial aircraft now, put about 4 or 5% of the CO2s and other contaminants that, that contribute to 
climate change, what do you call it, global warming, whatever you want to call it. And that's like a lot. But when you think of just airplanes putting in 4%, if we could solve that, it's not likely we're going to have electronic air flat, electric, I guess, all electric airplanes anytime in the near future, folks. That is quite a hurdle to jump yet. But if we get them on sustainable fuel, it won't be near as necessary to get it done so fast. So I hope that most of that was good news. That's what I call my factoid or earth science facts. I try to always, folks, fact check each one. One of the things I complain about in even on these kind of shows, whether I'm on the radio, if you're getting me there, or on the podcast, so many of the shows out there don't do it. They just tell you what they think and babble through their mouth and they never look it up. You can't find a good, honest newscast anymore. It's almost impossible to do. So always make sure you've got a little C-I-T-E, a site or an IBIT at the bottom. And if they can't show you where the information came from, if you really want to know, then you probably shouldn't really just full-heartedly believe whatever they're telling you. Organic matters. Stay with us. <laughs>